According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs. Oh, I don't know. What chapter are we? Proverbs 14. All right. I've been away for a couple of weeks anyway because of the Schaefer Conference, so appreciate uh, that and the blessing to be able to to uh, get out of town. I don't know that I'll ever get out of town again, but that was uh, that was a blessing. So I thank you for that. And uh, I want to pick up where we left off and uh, gain some new ground here this morning through the chapter. I, I've been charting how many classes we teach per chapter, and it looks like we are getting bogged down a bit. So I want to kind of speed things back up again. It's not a verse-by-verse study, a word-by-word study. It should be more of a uh, section by section uh, study, uh, working our way through the chapters. So, uh, anyway, praying over that as unto the Lord, trusting that we're feeding the flock as uh, according to His will. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for the Father to set aside our distractions and to uh, humble us under His truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have this morning to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved, and we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to drive away any distraction, uh, Father, from whatever that might happen, and uh, phone calls or texts or people at the door, whatever else tends to happen to uh, to cause struggles. So, Father, drive all that, fix uh, fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, Father, for his faithfulness, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. So we thank you for that. And we give you the praise and the glory now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs 4.14, and we've been dealing with uh, the rich and the poor in verses 20 and 21, and it's uh, aspects of this that we want to be clear on. Our Savior spoke of this. Uh, he said, the poor you will have with you always. And so it's curious to me when there are satanic liars out there that try to disagree with Jesus and tell you that uh, that we're going to usher in some kind of a utopia where there'll never be another poor person, uh, that we're going to enter into some kind of a utopia where everybody's going to be equal and everybody's going to be equally prosperous. And, and yet uh, every version of, of communism has ever been applied on this earth or socialism uh, has, has resulted in equal misery rather than equal prosperity. And uh, and there you have it. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And so I understand that. And, and I, uh, I believe what my Savior says because my Savior is the one that saved me. And uh, yet here in Proverbs, we have similar uh, blessings to uh, study in verses 20 and 21. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. And that's that makes sense, <laughs> right? Uh, when... when uh, you come into some kind of money, uh, then it's amazing all kinds of friends that show up or family that you forgot about or all kinds of people that are now going to be your new best friend when uh, they weren't, couldn't give you the time of day yesterday. But uh, all of a sudden today they, they learn that you won the lottery or something, came received an inheritance or some kind of thing. And uh, so yeah, those who love the rich are many. Um, verse 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. And so 
as we've been looking at this, um, if I have the right slide here, this is point 13 in the outline, uh, we, we need to have the proper perspective uh, pertaining, yeah, Proverbs prescribes a proper perspective pertaining to poor people. All right, and I'm, I don't know if there's rewards for alliteration of the judgment seat of Christ, but I'm trying to score as many as I can. Um, but we should have the, the proper perspective. And we have neighbors. Everybody has a neighbor. And, uh, you know, uh, you might have rich neighbors. You might have poor neighbors. We're, we should be godly and biblically uh, oriented towards all of our neighbors, rich or poor. And, uh, and uh, glorifying Jesus Christ, living the Word of God, uh, applying these things. Rich and poor can both be neighbors. Um, and it's curious as you understand that. And so being a neighbor, what does that mean? That means you're experiencing the same thing, the same weather, the same climate, the same crime, the same danger, the same uh, blessings. Uh, while we have common weather and welfare experiences, we have unequal earnings, savings, and wealth. And, and that will always be the case. It will always be the case. Deuteronomy 15.11 is uh, a promise here in uh, the law that Moses wrote about. Deuteronomy 15.11, and of course what Jesus said in Matthew 26.11. Deuteronomy 15.11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Any questions? I mean, is any part of that not clear? What part of the poor will never cease to be in the land don't you understand, right? I mean, it is what it is. And even if you just confiscated every dollar, every nickel, every red cent in this country today and distributed them 100% equally to every man, woman, and child, how long would it take before a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, once again, we're going to have inequality because productive people will be productive and unproductive people will be unproductive. And it is what it is. Anyway, the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. And so we should be gracious in our perspective. So uh, we have the reality there. Hate and love are contrasted in the poetry of this of these verses, verses 20 and 21. You'll note in verse 20, there's a hate and love contrast between uh, the A and the B portion of verse 20. And uh, then we have despising versus graciousness in uh, the A and B portions of, uh, of verse 21. Uh, hate and love are contrasted, but the command is to love your neighbor. And so we don't have a verse that uh, gives us that option to hate your neighbor. Uh, we have the, the command that says to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, we love our neighbor, especially if he is poor and could do nothing for you. And this is the point where we had the typo, and thanks to Christopher, we fixed it. It's uh, chapter 14. In, in Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 31 through 34, Luke 10, verses 29 through 36, and then the one that I had listed incorrectly is actually Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. And uh, that's uh, the one that was incorrect previously. So now you can correct your own notes. So dealing with that, what else do we have here? Um, when you despise your neighbor, understand despising your neighbor, that is a sin. It is an overt sin. It is an active sin. It's not just simply a sin of omission. It is a willful opposition to the plan of God. Despising. Despising is sin, not just a sin of omission. And that's the thing too, where I don't know why we get comfortable with sins of omission. People, uh, I say we or people or 
you know, a generic believer I might be talking about as an illustration, not looking at anybody in the room. But, you know, the fact is, is that sins of omission are sins like every other sin. They fall short of the glory of God. They leave you in a carnal state. They must be confessed. You must be restored to righteousness. All right. And, uh, and yet, for whatever reason, if there is a mentality that thinks that sins of omission are not as bad, well, he who knows the good to do and does not do it, sins. And that's, that's clear. And so uh, sins of omission are bad enough, but this is more than that. This is not just simply a sin of omission. It's not just, well, I failed to love my neighbor. I failed to be generous to the poor. I failed to be gracious to the poor. Yes, you failed on all those things on an omission basis, but you also despised him on an active basis. And uh, that's described here. It's described in uh, James 4.17. That's our sin of omission passage. Uh, when you go through First John, though, and you see this chain of verses that talk about when you don't love your brother, you actually hate your brother. And when you hate your brother, what are you, what are you truly doing? And uh, those verses there. I know we read them once. I'm just going to read them again. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them. But since we are a couple of weeks away from this study, at least it'll help us to <clears throat> fix our bearings and get reoriented back to what we're talking about. So in 1 John 2, we got verse 9 and verse 11. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 9 says, The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness even until now. Verse 11, The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And the only thing worse than being in darkness is not knowing you're in darkness, okay? Going forward on an assumption that you're okay, that everything's great, and yet you're walking in darkness because of the, the hatred that you are manifesting toward your brother. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Uh, and... Uh, Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember, Jesus taught about this in terms of the mental attitudes in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, yes, murder is sin, but what about hatred? And when you say raka, and then the, the illustration there, if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's, it's the equivalent of doing the deed. Just like hating your brother is equivalent of murdering him because you've murdered him in your heart. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so far beyond just a sin of omission and not being gracious to our brother in need, this is actual active hatred described here as an absence of love. You're not walking in the sphere of love that God has called us to walk in. Chapter 4 and then really the bulk of the whole chapter from verse 7 down to verse 21. Um, I'm not going to read all those verses, but uh, it's 15 verses to read through there. Um, and so we see the nature of our new birth. And so I would ask a question, really. If, if you are operating on the basis of, of, of a hatred towards your brother, then that's the old birth. That's the old nature. You've, you put that old garment back on again. You've not put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ so as to make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Because if you're born of God, no one born of God commits these sins. Anyway, we talk about what is our birthright by being born again and the blessing we have to uh, to uh, serving one another in this capacity. All right. Well, that... Uh, Brings us up to date from two weeks ago then. We can look back at one final detail I want to deal with in verses 20 through 21 before we change to the, to the next topic <clears throat> is this issue on happiness. The, uh, <clears throat> the one who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me that the happiness side of this equation is entirely put over there on the side of the, of the gracious individual, that the, the, the person that's the miser, the person that's uh, withholding goodness, the person that, that has this despising attitude against the poor, there is not any happiness on his side of the verse. Uh, the, there's no happiness on his side of the poetry, as it were. And so uh, you have a, a situation such as I think we understand whereby you might be personally rich and yet you have no happiness, no contentment, no joy uh, because uh, the, the mental attitude you know, that has you enslaved is this uh, despising. All right, Happiness comes through the expression of grace. Happiness comes through the expression of grace. The happiest people I know are the most grace-oriented people I know. And uh, it is, uh, I think, it's a, a direct proportion. And I think inversely, uh, when your grace is diminished and when you uh, struggle for grace application, I think so too will come your, your uh, diminishment of your personal happiness in terms of, uh, of uh, asherah, as the Scripture describes it. Happiness comes through the expression of grace. And uh, we're going to look at not only the Proverbs, but also several Psalms that address this. Jesus talks about this in the Beatitudes. Um, this is uh, what we deal with. And, and, and isn't it curious to me, we, we live in a world where everybody is chasing things to make them happy, <laughs> you know? And they will spend all kinds of money to make them happy. And then they'll work to make more money because money makes them happy and the things that money buys for them makes them happier, they think it does. And then this, this frantic, inveterate search for happiness. Remember that? Pastor Thiemann coined the, the acronym FISH, F-I-S-H, for the frantic, inveterate search for happiness. And it seems like, you know, 90% of the people I know, you know, unbelievers outside of this church, uh, most people in our culture are on that frantic search for happiness. And, and yet they're never finding it. Satan keeps promising it. The world keeps promising it. All right. And so... This is what we deal with here. And this is uh, interesting to me. And, you know, you tell people, hey, the secret to happiness is right here in this book. You know, oh, well, you know, they don't want to read the Bible or anything. Uh, but, but happiness is there and it tells you how to be happy. And it's unfortunate that I think ever since the Elizabethan uh, uh, King James uh, stra- uh, saddled us with blessed are, we've been, we've been trapped. We've been very trapped because so many of the passages still retain the language of blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And even uh, the modern English texts that know better, I think in the poetic passages like the Beatitudes, like the Sermon on the Mount, like the the Psalms, uh, I think they're reluctant to abandon the language of blessed are. And uh, and it's unfortunate 
because I think the Bible has plenty of things to say about blessings, plenty of things to say about uh, God when He does bless us. And we've got Hebrew vocabulary for blessing, and we've got Hebrew vocabulary for happiness. We've got Greek vocabulary for blessing, and we've got Greek vocabulary for happiness. And, uh, and I prefer to keep blessings and happiness distinct as far as the vocabulary is concerned. So as we deal with it, this is our Asher, Asheray vocabulary. And, uh, and we're going to look at these things, and, and I'll take them out of order. Let's start with Genesis 30, and then we'll, we'll take the Proverbs and the Psalms there. Uh, but you might recall, and if, if this helps you to remember, it helps me to remember, Genesis chapter 30. Do you remember the baby contest that Jacob's wives were having there? Okay. And it's a baby contest because it's a polygamy contest. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unhappy wife contest. Um, and uh, this is going on with, uh, really, the, the divine discipline on Jacob for not accepting the will of God. Uh, that, that Jacob had the girl he wanted to marry and then the girl he got tricked into marrying. And then uh, Jacob was not willing to suffer a loss. He was not willing to, uh, you know, a, a trickster never likes to be tricked. And Jacob was a trickster. And, uh, and then, of course, more divine discipline when God uh, lets the trickster be tricked and now he's got the wrong girl. He thinks it's the wrong girl. Well, we know Leah is the line of Christ. We know that Leah is the mother of Judah, and Judah is the line of Christ. And, and, and you know, Jacob should have been humble to accept the sister that he didn't want and, uh, and learn to love her and, and go forth. Anyway, we, we preached all this, and all this in the Life of Jacob series from years and years ago. But um, so he ends up with, with, with sisters, two wives, and each wife brings a maid, so he's got four. And that's a part of this whole mess here. So at the end of uh, chapter uh, 29 then with Leah, he has these, these children. And uh, anyway, so yeah, he gets tricked into marrying the wrong girl and then his father-in-law says, okay, tell you what, finish the, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other one also. So give Leah a honeymoon and then you can marry the other girl and uh, you'd be married to both sisters. And so um, he does, and Leah is unloved, curious to me, and yet being unloved doesn't keep him from sleeping with her because look at all these children. Leah conceived and bore a son, named him Reuben, and you notice she has a spiritual name for this. Okay, And this is why I love this. It helps me remember vocabulary, it helps me remember meanings, it helps me remember doctrines. So uh, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. He opened her womb and Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, named him Reuben. Why? Because the verb ra'ah means to see and ben means a son. Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. So there is a name, there's a basis. Theologically she names her son Reuben for this reason. See, she's a believer. She's she's on doctrine. She's got teaching. She's a great helpmate for... uh, the man about to be renamed Israel. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. And so even though, you know, whatever length of time goes by in between the firstborn and the secondborn now, she's still unloved. And uh, yet Jacob's still sleeping with her and making these babies. And and, uh, so she names him Simeon. And uh, we learn the Hebrew Shammah for here. 
and we learn the vocabulary there for hearing, and we learn about the blessings of Simon or Simeon. So she conceives again. This time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And so we learn about attachments in the, the vocabulary here. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. I think she's got a totally carnal husband for the birth of these first four children. And yet she's still worshiping the Lord. She's still praising God. She's still naming her son Judah. And Judah is the line of Christ. You know, and if she wasn't humble enough to keep serving the Lord, even through Reuben, Simeon, Levi, you see how God's blessing her? With a totally carnal husband this whole time. And then finally, Judah, the, our Savior, the line of Christ right there through Judah. Into chapter 30 then, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. So Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So now what's he going to do? He's got a wife he doesn't love, but he keeps making babies with her. And now with the wife that he does love, he's making him mad. Now he's angered against her. <clears throat> His anger burned against her. Since God is the one that's withheld from you the fruit of the womb. See, God opens wombs, God closes wombs, God's in charge of conception. All right, so she said, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her and that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Now this was a practice in the ancient world. This was a function for slaves. This was a function for concubines, whether they were slaves or free. Um, this was a function whereby a wife could assign a subwife, a concubine or a slave to be the surrogate that uh, legally the child uh, would then be considered the, the if, if there was an infertile wife, that uh, this was a procedure. All right. So uh, Bilhah conceived. And so, yeah, what are we going to do? We already have plenty of angelic conflict. We already have plenty of darkness, plenty of struggle, plenty of things are going wrong in this polygamous marriage. No happiness here. <laughs> Except Leah is finding happiness worshiping the Lord, I think. But uh, who else has happiness in this house? Who else has happiness in this family? And so clearly, if you're not on the right track, what do you do? Yeah, add to the problem, make matters worse. Let's throw a third wife into this polygamous con uh, you know, issue here. And uh, here's my maid. And Jacob, twisting his arm real hard, says, okay, I'll sleep with a third woman now. And so he went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore him a son. And uh, now I feel better. Rachel says, okay, God has vindicated me. He has judged. He has ruled in my favor, on my behalf. God has vindicated me. And it's curious too, I don't know, Rachel uses the name of Elohim there, whereas Leah uses the name of, of Yahweh and whether we can read a lot into that as far as her spiritual life. I think beyond that we know that Rachel's a spiritual loser anyway, so why Anyway, we, we learn those things. So, uh, and then, uh, so this is where Dan gets his name. Dan from the, the verb to judge. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. Of course, wrestling, that, that's what Jacob was known for. And anyway, she named him Naphtali, wrestling. 
Now Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. Now here's a problem, okay? Even if you're a believer, you're positive, you're on doctrine, you're learning and things are going, you can still be subject to competition and other things that are happening and you can have a moment, I think Leah has a moment here where Leah kind of walks away from her walk. She should have stopped with with Judah and kept on praising and, and just let it go. But she couldn't do it. So she takes her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. All right, so yeah, Leah, she's got some issues. Not 100% positive. And so Zilpah, now Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and she says, How fortunate. So she named him Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I. Women will call me happy, for so she named him Asher. And all of this now is 10 minutes to lead up to Asher means happy. (laughs) All right? Gad means fortunate, Asher means happy. Now, the Bible will help us remember these things. Do we have to read the other children too while we're here? Um, Because now there's more competition. And and then uh, finally, when Rachel finally has a baby, you know, lo and behold, she finally births a son. And what does she name him? I want another one. (laughs) No happiness, no rejoicing, no fortune, no uh, praise, no worship, no nothing spiritual whatsoever. Just Joseph, give me another one. Joseph means add or addition. And uh, so then God says, all right, I'll give you another one, but it's going to kill you. And uh, she births Benjamin and dies in the childbirth, uh, naming him Benoni of all things. And then then Jacob, after Rachel dies, says, all right, Forget that loser name. I'm going to name him Benjamin and uh, take it from there. All right. So 12 sons of Jacob and all these names and uh, doctrine that we can learn through all these names. But when you think about Zilpah and you think about that second handmaid and you think about what her perspective is based on fortune and happiness, Gad and Asher, what a tandem. But does that not communicate the world we live in? Whereby happiness is, is geared to fortune. And if you have good fortune, you have a human happiness. If you have a misfortune, then you have a human unhappiness. And happiness is, is totally centered on what happens, right? The happenstance. And if a happenstance is favorable, like, oh, look at that, then we're happy. But if a happenstance is not favorable, oh, we're not happy. And we become slaves to circumstances. I say we, humans without a divine viewpoint perspective. And it's all about Gad and Asher. It's all about Gad and Asher, the sons of Zilpah. All right. So Asher means happy. And Asherah is the expression for happy are. Happy are, happy are, happy are. And it's used repeatedly. It's the Old Testament basis for the Beatitudes in Matthew. The blessed are, the happy are from, from Makarios in the, in the New Testament. So with this then as a basis, we have Asherah, in tons of places. Not only the ones you have on the slide there, but we have, uh, we'll look at those. Let's get back to Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 14. I can't believe I didn't list Proverbs, uh, Psalm 1 or Psalm 119. Those are the easy ones to find. Um, how did I leave them off the slide? That's crazy. All right. But Proverbs 14, 21, that's the verse that started this whole thing. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. We have a tandem here with happiness and we have the identification with 
uh, graciousness. Also verse 31 of the same chapter. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And so again, the expression of grace, the expression of being uh, gracious towards uh, the needy, and it is honoring to God. What a uh, happy circumstance there. How about uh, over to Proverbs 19? Proverbs 19 and verse 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. How about that? You know, are you leery of loaning this guy some money because you think he can't, uh, he, may, he maybe is going to be shady or, or, or fall short, won't be able to pay you back? You know, you say, well, that's not really a secure loan. And, and uh, well, you're loaning to the Lord. How about that? Do you trust the Lord? <laughs> okay. I find that interesting. He, that is the Lord, Yahweh, will repay him for his good deed. Yahweh's uh, repayments are always venues for happiness. How about Proverbs 28, verse 8 and 27? Proverbs 28, 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. (laughs) You're using these underhanded worldly methods to get rich. And uh, God overrules and redirects those, uh, that wealth towards uh, His servants, the ones that are gracious to the poor. Uh, also verse 27, He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. So you talk about grace, a link between grace and happiness there. How about that? He who gives to the poor will never want but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Uh, getting out of the Proverbs then, we got Psalm 41. And even before Psalm 41, this is how the book of Psalms opens, right? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he medita- meditates day and night. That's how the book of Psalms opens. The book of Psalms opens with a definition of happiness. Happy. Asherah. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The problem with all these unhappy people is they're going to the wrong places to find their happiness. Searching for happiness in all the wrong places. Anyway, that's how Psalms opens. That's how Psalm 119 opens. That's how many of these Psalms open. That's how Psalm 41 opens. Psalm 41. Happy is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. How about that? The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. He shall be called happy upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. So we have a link here with Asherah happiness. And you see the graciousness of this. Uh, the Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed and his illness. He restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. All your enemies are waiting for you to drop dead, but you're just walking with the Lord. You're just walking in his grace. And there's happiness in that, uh, in that way of life. Psalm 112, verses 5 through 9.
And uh, I think there's another one in verse 1. I didn't. It says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That's got to be another Asherah use in Hebrews 1.12. Who greatly delights in his commandments. You get a, you get a joy and a delight out of the, uh, out of the scriptures. Uh, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with a man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. So there's a tandem here in a gracious mental attitude and personal happiness that God supplies with a believer that's oriented to the truth of the Word of God. His heart will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his enemies or his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. You talk about a contrast between two ways of living. There it is. It's not on the screen, but uh, Psalm 119 also opens with the Aleph uh, strophe. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed, how happy are the ones who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. So Psalm 119 also, just like Psalm 1, opens up with two verses of Asherah happiness. So uh, word studies for happiness include asherah. They also include makarios. And we have makarios applications. And these makarios applications, uh, of course, Matthew 5, 7, in the, uh, really more than just verse 7, but in verse 7 we have a link between graciousness, mercy, the one who shows mercy. But you have the whole paragraph of the Beatitudes here. Happy are, happy are, happy are, happy are. Verse 7 says, Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think that's the the, um, New Testament expression from the chesed, the blessed loving kindness, the chesed from the Old Testament. How about Acts 20.35? What did our Savior say? It is more happy to give than to receive. And again... Elizabethan, blessed. It is more blessed to give than to receive. we got red letter verses there in Acts chapter 20. Our Lord said it. Our Lord said it. Peter, uh, Paul quotes it. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but it was a statement of our Lord's. And being recorded there, it is properly red letter. How about Romans 14.22 and Titus 2.13? Here's a couple applications in the church age that I want to stress. Because I think they, uh, they hit us in our application for different aspects of what we're looking at. The, uh, in Romans 14, we've got applications that we make based upon um, our understanding of doctrine, our understanding of Scripture. And we have to make judgments based upon what we do know and how do we apply them as principles for things that we don't have uh, aspects in Scripture. So we, uh, we make personal applications on doubtful things. We make personal applications for things for which there are no clear commands in Scripture. And so it may be that 
the, the choices I make could be different than the choices you make, but we're both right as far as we make our convictions based upon Scripture. And so I'm not going to judge you, you're not going to judge me, we're not going to be legalists about it. We're going to have grace one towards another related to uh, these, these things that we're making applications on, whether it's eating and drinking, it's food uh, sacrifice to idols, whatever it might be, if it's an obstacle or stumbling block, apply the Word of God and do so in a gracious manner. And so um, the whole point is we should be edifying one another. So uh, verse 19 says we, in Romans 14, 19, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food or whatever it is. All right, you're eating something and somebody else doesn't approve it and they think you're carnal. They're judging you for what you're eating or drinking or smoking or whatever you're doing. And your conscience has made the decision that you have the liberty to enjoy such things. But your brother's conscience has made the decision that he's not at liberty to eat those things, drink those things, smoke those things, dance those dances, or whatever it is, watch those movies, or, or whatever the case may be. We should be building up, not tearing down. Edification means build up, not tear down. And uh, we've got too many demolition derbies going on around Christian churches. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So even if you have liberty to enjoy what you're enjoying, if in doing that you're tearing your brother down, you're wrong, you're evil. So it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And here they finally got it right. They translated Makarios with a happy. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. All right? If that verse would have been put in Matthew 5 and Jesus speaking in the Beatitudes, I'm sure they would have gone with a blessed R. It's happy. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. There's a great personal happiness for believers that are living there, I mean, think how free your conscience is. When you're just living your life as unto the Lord, before the Lord, your conscience is clear, you've, you've evaluated the issues, you've studied the doctrine, you're at peace with all this, man, have a nice life, okay? Be happy. That's kind of the, what was that song, the, the don't worry, be happy? I mean, man, there you go. Live it out. How about Titus 2.13? Titus, Titus. We call it the blessed hope, but you know what the rapture of the church really is? It's the happy hope. Okay? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the happy hope in the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Okay? And it's been called the blessed hope in English translations for centuries. I'm probably not going to overturn that in our generation, but I would like to um, think of it as the Makarios Elpis. It's the, it's the happy hope. It's the happy hope that we have. How happy is the rapture going to be? <laughs> Very happy. Exactly, very happy. As Andy Wood said last week, did you watch any of the conference or stream any of the, the sessions from the Schaefer conference? 
Did you hear Pastor Andy Wood's uh, segment? He said uh, he, as he evaluated his life, he could not find one realm of, of testing that, uh, that the rapture couldn't take care of. <laughs> Every element of his personal testing right now in his life, uh, you can't think of one that the rapture won't solve. Yeah, yeah, rapture solves all of it. We're out of here. Let's go be with the Lord. What a happy day. Happy day. So that's our happiness. Okay, well let's uh, come back to Proverbs then. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. So a lot of things to deal with in terms of happiness. Well, we we gained some new ground this morning then when we move on into verse 22. And it's kind of a, it's a different, uh, the poetry of verse 22 is separate from the poetry of verse 21, but the context is similar. I think uh, as these Proverbs were compiled, it's not surprising to me that, that uh, they got put back to back this way. Um, in fact, we got kind of a sequence here coming from verse 22 to 23 to 24 to 25. And I think as you see this, you'll notice, talking about how we interact with one another, how we interact with our culture, how we interact with our neighbors, uh, how do we operate in personal and public wisdom. And um, you'll notice this. So we look at verse 22, and it's a question, a rhetorical question. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. And let me just read a few of these verses. We're going to take them individually, but you'll see kind of, I think, the connection between them. So again, verse 22, Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Any disagreements there? The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. All right, so what we have here kind of, and and we've observed this in previous chapters as well, we've observed that the kind of the final chunk of each of these chapters tends to be a shotgun kind of a um, uh, or a machine gun kind of thing with individual verses that, that just hit you one verse after another verse after another verse as another verse. Not a lot of poetry that, that links them together. And, uh, and so that's what we see here. So we start with point 14 then. And, uh, and what I may end up doing is uh, creating a, kind of a, an overall um, omnibus point to then summarize the remainder of the chapter and then start to list these verses individually as we work our way through. But what does it mean to be devising? Devising evil or devising good? This is what's contrasted here in this verse. Devising, okay? Being clever, crafting, inventing, shaping. This is uh, taking our God-given inventiveness and either turning it to a, a satanic use or honoring the Lord. Again, are we going to devise evil or are we going to devise good? And what is that? Devising evil or devising good? These are the outward expressions of an inward nature. An outward expression of an inward nature. Uh, if a, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. The evil tree cannot produce good fruit. And, and so there is something internal that is either honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ or it's 
It's a thing of darkness. And, and, and the things that we devise and, the, and the, the inventive ways that humans find to, uh, to sin is, uh, is something else. And so I want to kind of handle that in the first part, get to those verses, look at Proverbs 14, uh, look at Romans, look at Matthew, and that's probably as far as we're going to get with it here this morning. Uh, but there's more to actually realize that this term is one of the most fascinating expressions for creativeness. Uh, for devising, it's 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 harash uh, is the Hebrew. It's a term for for plowing, for cutting, for engraving. Uh, you realize plowing, you're cutting into the earth. Engraving, you're cutting into uh, into uh, gold or silver. You're cutting into uh, wood. You're cutting into uh, something. And depending on how you cut you may end up with something quite beautiful. You can cut into a gem and, a, and the, the gemstone's actually more beautiful after it's been cut because you're, you're shaping the, the facets and you're, you're bringing out the, 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 the um, what do you call it, the, the sparkles uh, in, in the gem. And uh, anyway, harash is a, is a curious thing. It gets used in a lot of different realms, including... Um, witchcraft, sorcery, including uh, some of our angelic conflict terms as it relates to demons and spirits. Uh, practitioners of magic are the engravers uh, because they're the ones that are manufacturing these amulets uh, that are engraven amulets. And so uh, there's a particular wisdom that goes with this kind of cutting or engraving. Anyway, as far as a word study goes, harash will take you far and wide in at least four major scopes, and some would say five major uh, scopes of application. None of that has any bearing on Proverbs 14, so we'll, we won't get lost in the, in the details there. Um, so understand, this idea of, of deeds and devising evil, devising good, the external applications are the evidence of what's internal. So we don't want to confuse or put the cart before the horse and confuse things as if the outward deeds is what credits us the righteousness or the outward deeds is what earns us or deserves us God's favor. See, we don't want to get lost in that, that, well, because I devised evil, I'm going to go astray. Or because I've devised good, well, then God owes me kindness and truth. Right? That's, that's getting it wrong. And so we want to understand it uh, on this basis. Kindness and truth, by the way, is a description of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about that? The law came by Moses, grace and truth were manifest in Jesus Christ. And so uh, here we have the, I think, um, the, the, the Hebrew basis for that New Testament statement. But kindness and truth. Kindness and truth. This is a verse I want to use. Pray, pray for this, by the way, because I want to, um, I was introduced to a Muslim girl and her name means kindness. Uh, her name is Atefa. She's from Iran, and her Persian name or Farsi means kindness. And uh, well, you want to know about kindness and truth? Let me tell you about kindness and truth um, as it relates to our salvation revealed in the Bible. And uh, get you away from the lies of Islam and get you away from the slavery of, of, uh, of that. All right. Um, something similar happens, by the way, in Romans 2. Remember, remember this when we taught this in the Roman series, Romans chapter 2. By itself and in isolation it might cause us to, uh, to uh, take it the wrong way. 
Thankfully, these verses are not by themselves. They're not in isolation. We do have context that they're placed in, and we have um, other passages of Scripture for cross-reference. But Romans 2, verse 7 and 8, similar to what we're dealing with in Proverbs 14, what does it say? It says, um, talking about God and His kindness. Romans 2, 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I think that's a verse I can share with kindness and see what she thinks. All right. Uh, but it says, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation and the righteous judgment of God. So there's a heart issue. Are you going to be repentant or are you going to be stubborn? And there is a judgment day coming. God will render to each person according to his deeds. And when those books are open, those are books of deeds that are opened on judgment day. Now to those who are by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor immortality, and eternal life. Well, that looks like it's deeds, right? Those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's the judgment? Wrath and indignation. Wrath and indignation. Okay? And so there's two verses, verse 7 and 8 where it appears that the basis for this criteria is what we do, right? And yet the, the, the deeper look and the, and the um, uh, cross-references show us quite clearly, no, none of us do this. None of us is good, only Jesus is good. And so persevering and doing good, that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, <clears throat> obeying the truth, obeying, not obeying the truth and obeying unrighteousness, that's rejecting the gospel. So when you accept the gospel, we have one judgment. When you reject the gospel, we got another judgment. So do you want to go to the judgment seat of Christ or do you want to go to the great white throne? <laughs> which, uh, which venue do you want to... Clearly, we want to be at the judgment seat of Christ. We want to be the bride of Christ standing at the judgment seat of Christ. That's our venue. Uh, that's our judgment. <clears throat> Likewise, Matthew 25 sometimes bothers some people. Matthew 25. Sheep and goat judgment. Verses 31 through 46. And sheep and goat judgment, again, first glance, surface level. People get wrapped up around it and they say, ooh, wait a minute, this, this is a judgment of works. This is a judgment or I can earn something, I can deserve something. And if I'm a good person and I've, I've given the hungry something to eat and I've given the thirsty something to drink and I gave the naked something to wear... Well, then I'm a good person. I've done good things. So now God owes me. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, it's curious because we get the, uh, the indicator here. Yes, they have done all those things. However, why did they do those things? What was motivating them to do those things? On what basis were they led to do those things? And as you read through this parable, I'm not, we're going to probably run out of time here, but Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before Him. Okay, so this is not a, a, a end of life judgment of dead people that are being resurrected and being evaluated for their life work. 
It's not the great white throne judgment where the dead are raised and, and thrown into the lake of fire. It's not the judgment seat of Christ where the dead are raised and rewarded as a part of the bride. These aren't dead people. This is the conqueror at the end of the tribulation and he's bringing together the living survivors of the tribulation. And for Gentiles it's sheep and goat judgment. For Jews it's the wilderness judgment of, of Ezekiel 20. And this is not an evaluation of everything they've done in their life so that they have eternal rewards bestowed upon them. This is just a pass-fail. Are you saved? You get to enter into the millennium. In other words, sheep. Are you not saved? You're not going to enter into the millennium. He's going to kill you here on the spot and send you to hell. All right. And so as a shepherd he gathers them and separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. You want to be at the right hand, okay? So the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit, and I think that's not happy blessed, I think that's blessed blessed. Um, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They get to enter into the kingdom. Now he does describe the things they did, but don't let that confuse you because notice in verse 37, then the righteous will answer him. The righteous will answer. And you see that? They are righteous, positionally righteous. All right. How do you you obtain the righteousness of God? Can anyone obtain the righteousness of God based on their works? No. No. So we understand they receive the righteousness of God by faith. On the basis of that imputed righteousness, they then do those things. So, all right? Doug or Al, I think we've got an appointment that's arriving in the driveway there. All right. So then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we do this? When did we do this? He said, well, to the extent you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And so uh, we have that. Now, in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones. Now, what's the basis for being accursed? What's the basis for, remember, if you don't believe the Son, what's the consequence? He who does not have the Son shall not see life because the wrath of God abides on him. They are not accursed ones because of the things they did or because of the things they didn't do. Clearly into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. So do you think it's based upon what they did or didn't do? It's based upon their works? Of course not. So what they've done, devising evil or devising good, is simply the outward expression of an inward nature. It's an outward expression of an inward nature. We want to operate based upon our inward nature as created in Christ, being saved, we can bring from our new heart a good treasure or we can bring from our old heart the bad treasure. We're still capable of bringing forth both. As long as we're in these fallen bodies we can bring forth both. Alright? Is that clear? We want to be clear on that because you realize getting saved doesn't do away with your sin nature. <laughs> Not in the church age. Not now. There's coming a synectomy. Okay, that synectomy is coming up and I can't wait. For us it's at the rapture, okay, or physical death. 
But I mean, there, there is coming a day when there's no more death, when there's a cleansing. It says the earth and its works will be burned up. It says the world is passing away. And what else? What's, what's going with it? And also its lusts. Also its lusts. I think with the cosmos passing away, that's one thing. But then when it says and also its lusts, that's the synectomy. That's the global eradication of the sin nature from all living humanity at the end of the millennial kingdom. How powerful is that? And every human on the planet gets this synectomy with uh, the cosmos passing away. So until then, we uh, confess our sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Until then, we've got two treasuries within us and uh, you know which treasury we're going to bring out, the good things or the bad things. Okay? We can, we can produce either. We, we ought to be just producing the good things and uh, dealing with it from there. Alright, next week we'll pick up on this because uh, we got these issues on Harash we want to find out. Several of them we've already, we've already dealt with in terms of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 12. We, we've encountered this Harash many times and I don't know that I made an emphasis of it on any of the occasions that we've, we've encountered it already. So um, uh, my apologies it's, uh, if, if I didn't make it a stressed point in any of those earlier chapters uh, then I feel bad because uh, there's, uh, there's something worthwhile in looking at those, alright? Um, so we'll, we'll deal with that. Any questions? Concerns? Comments? Complaints? Alright. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Thank You for the week off that we had last week and the, the blessings of taking part in the uh, Schaefer Conference. Uh, just look forward to seeing there's uh, the fruit that's been born and continues to be born. It is uh, it's a glorious thing to watch your hand at work. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.